Hello, I'm your host, Ray Dogum, and welcome to Vibecast. Thank you for joining us as we explore the exciting advancements in technology-enabled collaboration to excel important drug development. VibeBio seeks to find every cure for every community. We think big, as no one should be left behind in the pursuit of living a healthy, happy, and productive life free from disease. Collectively, we have the skills, we have the technology, and we have the passion. We now need the community catalyst to bring it all together. That's Vibe. We see a future where communities of biopharma experts and patients collaborate to identify high potential medicines and have the ability to access capital on demand to develop them. Vibecast is our weekly informational podcast where we explore some of the hottest topics in drug development and technology innovation with the dynamic people that make up the Vibe community. Join us to learn, imagine, question, and help us identify and develop solutions together. You can find us on your favorite podcast player and YouTube, as well as Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We'd love to hear from you. Our guests today are Casey McPherson and Rick Barkley, and together they started a company called Everloom Bio. Everloom Bio is pioneering a novel approach to drug development for rare diseases, as opposed to working on a single disease, Everloom is providing drug development as a service. Casey also has a daughter with a rare genetic disease caused by a mutation of the HNRNPH2 gene. To help his daughter, he founded To Cure a Rose Foundation to help fund the development of a drug to cure and treat this disease. Rick, Casey, welcome. Really uh, excited to be having this conversation with you and learning more about Everloom Bio and what you guys have been working on. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Ray. Appreciate it. Awesome. Uh, maybe what you guys can first do is kind of give a brief bio about yourselves so the audience kind of knows who you are, what you've been working on, uh, and then we can get into the presentation. Sure. I, you know, I'm Casey McPherson. I've been a professional musician most of my life and up until about four years ago, uh, five years ago. And uh, and so, you know, I've, I've been in real estate, um, app development, you know, and, you know, had a couple of hits and, uh, toured the world, uh, in, in, in my band. And, and so, you know, this is, uh, certainly approaching all this from a different perspective. And, and first and foremost, though, father of two, two girls, Weston, who's nine and Rose, um, with, you know, the rare neurodevelopmental disease, uh, she is seven and, uh, and yeah, working on this all day, every day. And Casey, I've listened to a few of your songs on YouTube. Amazing. Uh, really, uh, just fun music and exciting. So thanks for sharing. Thanks, Ray. Appreciate it. And uh, so my name is Rick Barkley. Um, I'm one of the co-founders and CEO of Everloom. A little bit about my background, um, kind of similar to Casey, in this, not in the sense that I used to be a musician, but uh, kind of this is sort of my first foray into um, biotech. And uh, my path has you know, kind of been like a like a call myself a serial entrepreneur. I've started and exited a few um, software companies. Um, most recent one, a company called CloudSnap that was sold um, to Paylocity in um, I guess the beginning of 2022, and kind of was like you know trying to figure out what my next uh, step in life was going to be, and ended up getting uh, hooked up with Casey and he was talking a lot about just the 
broken system and um, really connected with me. I also have um, actually have three uh, special needs uh, kids that we had adopted. And um, one of them has a neurological disorder. And so I had certainly understood part of the journey that Casey had been going through. And so it really resonated with me. And um, yeah, we started Everloom Bio to help solve uh, some of those some of those big problems. Amazing. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, both of you really appreciate it. So why don't we sort of dive into the company, how you guys started it? I know you kind of mentioned a little bit about the reason why you started it, but uh, how did it actually happen? You know? <laughs> well, you know, if we, if we go backwards, it, it, it really began with all the problems and, and on the next slide, we'll sort of show some, some, some of the, those main issues. Um, but when when Rose was diagnosed, you know, she I took the whole the whole exome sequence to the neurologist, and he said, "Casey, your daughter has a rare genetic disease. There is no cure. There's no clinical trial. There's nothing we can do. But good luck." And and what it really boiled down to was, you know, I after talking to hundreds of biotech company executives and and academics and drug developers and foundations was that we do have technologies to cure many of these rare diseases. What we don't have are the systems and the pipelines and scalable models um, and business models to do it. Um, you know, right now, currently you need at least a thousand diagnosed patients uh, in a market for a rare disease treatment to be profitable. And, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but because uh, drugs are built on this very old system, in my opinion, of intellectual property and, and, and going to market like a product uh, that, uh, you know, we are missing out, uh, many, many children and, and families are missing out on curative treatments because our model doesn't work for them. And so if you look at the numbers, you know, we have over 10,000 rare diseases, um, which affect over 400 million people in the world, you know, just cut that in half, that's about 200 million kiddos. And uh, about, you know, 15 million alone in the US of, of children. And those are huge numbers, you know, and, and, but then if you even look deeper into many of these genetic mutations have variants. So, you know, different, a different part of their gene has a different mutation, which could lead to a different drug as well. And, and so, you know, what's happened is uh, just like me, you know, once I learned this, once I learned, wow, I could cure, I could create a therapy for my daughter. Um, it just uh, might not be profitable. And that's, that's really the only reason why she didn't have a therapeutic. And when I saw that there were all these children that, that uh, and not all 200 million have that problem, but many, many of them, you know, these diseases do, um, I started a, a foundation, you know, um, and, and the foundations currently are the only way that we can really fund the development of these treatments. It's, it's, you know, through, through donations and grants and, and, but, but it doesn't fix the problem. 
you know, and, and what we're seeing now, if you think about, you know, families, there's 200 million kids, then you could almost argue there's at least 100, 100 to 150 million families. And, you know, those families could be uh, carpenters, teachers, lawyers, even doctors. Um, but, but most of those families, because these diseases are surviving, you know, every day with these children, there's very few resources for special needs kids. Just ask Rick. <laughs> Rick's, <laughs> Rick has to create, you know, an army uh, to, to help take care of his kiddos. And, you know, and I just have one, but I'm a single dad. And so, you know, it's all hands on deck, but it, uh, out of all those families, there's a very, there's a few of them that are saying, okay, we're going to go raise some money and we're going to go do this. And so that now you start seeing all these family foundations popping up around particular genetic mutations and, and they're doing different things around, maybe they're trying to develop a drug, maybe they're doing a natural history, funding a natural history study, you know, maybe they're funding a registry and they're trying to collect cell lines. Um, but, you know, five, 10 years ago, making a drug for these diseases would have been near impossible. It would have cost, you know, $30 million in 10 years just to get to um, uh, a trial. You know, now um, we're seeing uh, uh, foundations like Julia, you know, what Julia Vitarello did with Mila and what recently Terry did with um SBG 50 with his son um, have, have, have used these current technologies and been able to get to a phase one trial with as little as two to $4 million. Very, very different than the price tag for biotech and pharma, you know? Um, and so, you know, when I learned all that, I could not do this, you know, and, um, and I think as, as part of the story of Everloom, you know, I think we can, basically we ran into all these problems, which I'll get into, you know, Rick and I'll get into in a little bit, but, but we ran into all these problems and realized that there's really no one in the current system that can do this efficiently. And I remember sitting on the front porch with my CSO at the time, Rodney Bowling, and uh, who's a brilliant drug developer and said, man, I wish we just had a place we could just do this work and, and do it better and, and do it faster. And within weeks, I met Rick. Hmm. And I was, you know, pitching Rick for a donation to the foundation. He's like, isn't there maybe a way we could solve this besides just, you know, uh, donating? And so Rick and I got together and we started talking about this lab idea. And, you know, very quickly came up with, with a initial business model. And Rodney quit his job and at, at a leading biotech company here in, in Austin and, and Everloom was born, you know, with the mission and the idea that could we create a genetic treatment for one person in one day? Oh. Now, you know, we're, 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 we're not there yet by any means, but, but we've seen what used to take 10 years and then took five has taken as short as 12 months to develop a genetic treatment and get it into a phase one trial from diagnosis 
diagnosis to administration. And, and I think I was going to mention go ahead, this really right. quickly. I think one of the interesting things is, you know, especially just kind of like getting into the space and seeing where Casey started, you know, a couple, you know, two, three years ago to where we are now. And there's been, you know, costs have dropped, you know, fairly dramatically and time scales have dropped, have dropped dramatically as well. So even from when Casey first started this journey to now, there's been a lot of, um, there's been a lot of improvements in, in, in the whole process. And so I think a lot of people don't understand how something like this is becoming more and more um, attainable. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and so we wanted to provide a space for families to do this work efficiently and quickly. And, you know, we see a world where genetic treatments are no longer a drug, but they're a molecular procedure, if you will. You know, that the next dad that walks into the neurologist, the next mom that walks into a neurologist with a genetic report, instead of saying, good luck, nothing we can do, says, hold on, we're gonna take your data, we're gonna build a genetic treatment and we'll administer it to your child, you know? And, and that's, that's what we're living for, you know? And that's the, the dream that I think, like Rick says this, is closer to reality than we think, you know? And I, and I, I, I believe that to be true, but we've got to build these systems in order to get there. One of the, let's see, I want to sort of back up for a second. Sure, I just want to say one thing as well. First of all, thanks for sharing that origin story. Uh, really powerful. I think you guys are obviously doing this from you know the bottom of your hearts. This really means the world to you guys. And I think it is important for people to realize like how much technology has improved over recent years. Like for example, uh, you know, Casey, you probably you know if your daughter was born you know twenty years ago, maybe she might not have had that whole exome sequencing done to identify what was um, what disease she had, for example. So like just those technology diagnostics technologies are starting to become more available. And many, you might've known that, but many parents might not be aware of it. So I think it is, it's important to keep spreading that message about there is something that these parents can do. And you guys are a great example of parents who are doing something about this. So I just want to say kudos to you guys. Um, Thanks. Yeah, no, thanks, Ray. I mean, and, and that's a perfect segue into, you know, backing up, I'll tell you what my experience was and what most of these families are going through and where Everloom really wanted to step in and, and change this particular, this is one piece of the problem <laughs> is, you know, at diagnosis, most of the pedi pediatric neurologists or pediatricians don't even know that you can order a whole genome or a whole exome sequence. They're running panels because it's all that it, that that insurance companies are really approving, and and so in order to really get down to the bottom of of what a genetic mutation might be, you need to run a whole genome sequence. Well, you know, when our whole exome sequence was ten grand four years ago, now we can do a whole genome sequence for as little as two or three hundred bucks. You know, so the the price has dramatically come down, but insurance, you know, and and pediatricians and pediatric neurologists are still uh, you know, as a whole, not recommending, like, you know, that's where you should start really, you know, it's cheap, it's relatively quick and you can get to the bottom of, of the problem. And so a disease like my daughter's 
100, 100 known patients. But really, it's about one in 50,000 born. So there's, there's really probably about 10,000 people with her disease worldwide, about 3,000 in the U.S. But because we're not utilizing diagnostics, we're calling it autism or we're calling it a seizure disorder or they're, they're, they're giving a, like a diagnosis, giving a diagnosis based on just what they're seeing visually, a clinical phenotype. And, and so we're missing a lot of a mark. We're missing, you know, millions of kiddos in, in a market because we, we're not diagnosing properly. You know, that when you do get your diagnosis, my, my experience was the only way you can develop a drug is you, you go to an academic institution. And so there's two ways to pay for an academic institution. One is just give, give them a donation. And the other is to, to build a contract around an SRA agreement, which is what biotech companies do. Um, but what's happening, so, so, so these, these, these treatments are so rare. So, so there's, real, there's, there's really no market for them. And, and so families will raise money, will either give it, more than likely give it to the academic institution. And there's a scientist that's championing this. that's saying, okay, I'm going to use a current technology like ASOs, gene therapy, base editing, you know, something, you know, small molecule. Uh, and we're going to, we're going to get yourself aligned. So we're going to test some drugs and we're going to optimize the drug and, and get it ready to, to, to go through an IND process at the FDA. The problem with that no matter how great the scientists are, is that academic institutions are IP havens. And so what my experience was, I began to negotiate with the tech transfer office to own this intellectual property. And I'll share with you why that was so important that I owned it. And, and, and they didn't know what to do because they're typically used to getting million dollar milestones for these kinds of agreements. Um, and so you're paying this researcher to build this drug, but ultimately the academic institutions will own it. And what they typically do at that point is they'll license it out to a biotech company. And so what we've seen over the last five years is many, many of these family foundations have created these treatments in academia, but academic institutions own them then they license them to biotech companies, to people in the industry. The problem with that was all these biotech companies are venture capital back and they need to see a return in a certain amount of time. And so if you're running multiple programs, guess which program gets dropped first? It's that one that those families raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for to create a proof of concept drug. And, and so what we've seen now, especially, man, this last year was terrible are all of these curative treatments getting shelved. They're being stuck as intellectual property in these biotech companies. Because as you can see in the beginning, the system was already sort of working against you, you know? And, you know, if you can even make it past all of that, the way that the requirements in the FDA, you know, if I made a drug for Rose, their tox requirements, over a million dollar package, it's the same as if I made a drug for 10,000 kiddos.
So, you know, you're, I can make a drug for a tenth of the price that it costs to get it through the FDA with GMP manufacturing and, and tox packages. So there's, there's a disconnect here with how we're doing drug regulatory requirements for these rare diseases. This isn't aspirin, you know, this isn't, this isn't a, a, a vaccine for hundreds of millions of people. This is a drug for a, a child, 10 children, 100 children, you know, these things should go really, really quickly. And, and there should be an affordability to it and an access to it, which just does not exist at the moment, you know, but it's, it's, it's like the DMV for drug development. And, you know, there's a lot of great people in the FDA, but they're there to, to keep the, you know, keep the crack pops, crack pots out. Um, and so there's a lot of renovation in this whole system that needs to happen. And Everloom wanted to offer a way that families could do this drug development without ever worrying about intellectual property. We, we are not, you know, we don't take intellectual property from these families and they own their data, you know, and then Rick can get into some of the, you know, some of the data stuff, but that, that was a, when that happened to me, and then, you know, I got all the way up to the tech transfer and eventually we just couldn't come up with a solution. And that's, you know, a month or two later, we started Everland, you know, we started the conversations around Everland. But I'm watching other families, literally children are dying while these intellectual property issues are happening in tech transfer and in industry, you know. And so we, we had to have a different solution for these families doing drug development. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. That is unfortunate that it currently works this way. Um, but I'm hopeful that what you guys are working on, what others in the community are working on will help to address these sort of antiquated processes and really just create that personalized medicine or experience that I think we can, we can accomplish now with the, not only the biomedical and biotech technologies, but the digital technologies, the ability to collaborate more effectively online and things like that and share information. Um, yeah. Thanks for that. Uh, Rick, did you have anything to add on on this? No, I think Casey did a great job just sort of explaining the <laughs> just the the problem on on why uh, you know the current system just doesn't work. And uh, yeah, I don't have anything else to add outside of that. Awesome. Let's see what the the next slide holds. Yeah. So these, you know, when we started with this idea, you know. Uh, immediately started getting phone calls. And obviously we started with Rose. We we put Everloom into a bioincubator space in Austin, you know, which saved us a lot of money on lab equipment. And we began working with family foundations to do their uh, uh, preclinical drug development. And then we also ended up working with some rare disease biotech companies too. And, and, and we found that that we could get started really, really fast because there wasn't any IP negotiation. Um, and, and we're, you know, we're laser focused on how can we do this in a more efficient, scalable way, you know, and, uh, and reminded that at the end of all these data points are, are real children, real families 
that that ultimately the goal is is to give these kids a second chance at life. And we know that we have to create a business model around that, unfortunately, to make it scalable. You, you know, we can't just keep raising donations. You know, these families are breaking their backs to do it. And, and so, you know, our thought here is if we can bring this cost down and bring the timeline down and get it to where it's more affordable, you know, for the general public to afford and ultimately for insurance to cover because that's really what should be happening, you know, but, but there's a lot of hearts and minds that need to change um, to get there, you know, but, but we want to start carving out that model um, from, from the development standpoint now, because we believe it's sooner rather than later. On that point, uh, what, how have, you know, health insurance companies looked at this and has there been a change in the way that they view uh, drug development for rare diseases now or the funding of, you know, rare disease treatments, at least? I know they're not going to necessarily fund early stage research like most insurance companies, but they should be able to pay for treatments that do exist, right? Um, yeah, I mean, that, and that's what's, that's one of the, the changes that has to take place. So we have current technologies. If there's a gene that needs to be down-regulated or up-regulated, we're getting to the point where we can, we can get pretty close to determining whether a mutation is amenable to current platform technology around, you know, genetic treatments um, that, that has moved through the FDA, that has proved to be safe. And, you know, granted, there's, there's a lot more uh, gray area in that. But, but really where we're getting to the point is this is a rinse and repeat process. This isn't a let's go out and search for a drug process. This is a rinse and repeat, you know, fail, iterate, fail, iterate, closer, 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 bam, move into IND, you know, and and it's not a fishing expedition. Sometimes it is, but but there are many times where it's not anymore. And I think that's what's what's sort of new for humanity. We've never had that opportunity ever, you know, in the history of our existence that we could uh, edit our genome in this way uh, for, for many of these diseases and, and you know, and, and prove over and over and over again, we can do it. And I think one of the other sort of like key things, it's like, and again, this is why, why Everloom exists is the system is not, you know, Casey's talking about what is, you know, the first time in humanity that we can start to do some of these you know, um, you know, we can start to build some of these therapies and the, the system is not built for that from the business side to the companies to really every, every piece along the road, it's not built for this sort of like new paradigm. And that's really where, you know, that's really what we're doing over at Everloom is building a company around this idea that, people should just be able to, if they have a genetic issue, they should just be able to very easily get it fixed. And it shouldn't be this incredibly difficult thing that, that it is now because the system is just not built for that. And so 
you know, talking about insurance, that's a big piece of it. The FDA is a big piece of it. Just the the technology, putting the putting the systems and things in place is a, a big piece of it. And Everloom's, you know, doing a lot of those, you know, working on a lot of those things, but there's certainly stuff that also I would say is outside of our control, like like insurance. And I think that you're seeing some, you're certainly seeing some movement and interest in in looking at things differently. But I would say there's still like a very long way to go, both on the FDA side and on the insurance side to really like have them start looking at this differently. Um, and even like the term that, you know, I love the term that Casey used earlier, mo- molecular surgery. Because if you think about a surgery, you're not going, uh, you're not going to get like the special approval process every time a surgeon does a surgery. And sometimes, even if you look at surgeries, it's not like a hundred percent guaranteed thing. Um, sometimes surgeries, you know, sometimes surgeries fail. And uh, and I really think that that that's you know the direction that Everloom is is working on is 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 really is really like trying to like help people look at this as a completely different type of thing instead of putting it in just like the the same biotech box that drugs have been developed on for the past, uh, you know, 50, 60 years. Absolutely. And I, I can imagine like how important this is to, to families that are looking for something to help them to help their children. So, um, yeah, I mean, let's learn more. Let's continue. Yeah. So, so to prevent, <laughs> To prevent a, uh, uh, a, a a an idea that we're we're being a little naive here, um, the, <clears throat> this is incredibly difficult. Uh, developing a drug is incredibly difficult. Um, but why? You know, if we have these platforms that are working for many of these diseases, why is it taking so long? And one of the biggest reasons we've seen is that. We are, because intellectual property is is how we are looking at drugs, every biotech company and academic institution is an island of data. And and this is where, you know, crypto comes in and and, and, and other like blockchain specifically and, and, and some poss- possible other solutions and certainly AI, which is what we're banking on as, as well. But if you look at the system, we have all of this data around, say, gene therapies, vectors that work, promoters that work, um, antisense oligonucleotides, which, which we do a lot of that work. Um, there is a lot of assay development and testing these things and gathering data. Is it toxic? What are the off-targeting effects? Um, you know, what uh, if you build it this way, what happens? Well, see... Because academic institutions, their their primary, you know, in order to keep a lab going, you have to publish papers so that you can get more funding. And and oftentimes when you're publishing, you're leaving out a lot of the mistakes and a lot of the data. You're publishing on your discovery. When you are a company, you are you have hundreds of millions of dollars invested in you. And you cannot risk the FDA saying no because you had bad data. And so oftentimes that data is under lock and key. And so we're seeing this 
this from companies and academic institutions, we're seeing the tiny sliver of data that's published data that we saw that we should have seen two years ago. Now we're seeing a, a tiny sliver of it. Companies, a drug didn't work, no one knows why. A drug did work, but no one knows why all their other iterations didn't. And so there's these silos of data all over the place. And, and you look at, so, so understanding that that's happening, okay, that's a problem. But, but then you look at when we bring technology in to say, hey guys, we wanna share data. And they're like, uh-huh. They're, they're like, talk to my attorneys. And, and, and so where technology brings this ability to connect data pieces, the, the business model is still built on holding your IP tight. And so for, for us, where we've really been thinking about is how do we create incentives for people to share their data? And ultimately the way that we're looking at it and, and sort of where we're gonna spend some of our time this year and, and, and have spent some of our time is taking the model of say Google. Google's a data company, but they create a badass search engine that everybody wanted to use. Facebook is a social media company. We're willingly uh, sharing our data with them because I love getting to see products that I'm marketed to, you know, I that that I that I already like. Um, I I I like what I'm getting, and so I am willing to share a certain amount of data with these companies. And we know that if I just type in to Google ski resort in you know, France, and I'm in Austin, that that data doesn't have a whole lot of value. But if enough people type in ski resort in France, then they begin to sort of create a profile on people that like ski resorts in France. Well, it's the same that works with, with, with like RNA therapeutics. Hmm. So we designed thousands and thousands uh, of these drugs that have zero data attached to them. But if we're if, if in our process is we're testing those drugs on cell lines and we're getting data around that, and typically what happens is all that data is just thrown away because we get to that optimized one drug and that's what we take to the FDA. Hmm. We're, we're designing systems where we can take all of that data from the very beginning and we say, hey, that bad data, that data where it didn't work, we think that that's really valuable. Because with each one of those data points, we create a profile around that drug design. And we believe that we're gonna be seeing patterns around that. And ultimately, that those kinds of data sets with all of these platforms are crucial to cutting down the time and the cost of the drug development into no more assays, no more animal models, because we have predictive technology we've proven that says this drug is going to work because we have millions of data points that support it. And I and, and so we're big believers that that's going to be the way through. Um, our challenge is, can we create that incentive for companies and academics to share it in a way where it's de-identified data? So it doesn't violate their intellectual. We have to work in the old system while creating the new system, you know. Absolutely. And, and, and that's really the challenge. 
For sure. And a lot of the things you just said resonate with the themes of like decentralized science uh, as like a category right now in the blockchain world. So the ability for all these scientists, researchers to not silo their data. And, you know, like you said, some of them never use it again or they throw it out. I, I hope they don't throw it out. Like this is something that these experiments cost time and they cost money and someone had to conduct them. And there is there are insights that people can gain from them. Um, so I also feel like, you know, having these large pharma companies or biotechs essentially hide some of that data only to have the same experiments be rerun by multiple other companies again and again with maybe some slightly different results, but never shared. It doesn't make any sense to me. If our goal is to focus on treating patients or to help reach new treatments and cures, why are we like working against each other in, in some ways? Um, yeah, I'm with you there. And it's the cultural thing, right? It's not something that is necessarily a policy. It's just sort of partially capitalism as it exists today. Um, you know, you mentioned crypto and blockchain. I think that with the evolution of decentralized ledger technologies, there is an opportunity. And I think DeSci is really like leading this charge. There's an opportunity to allow multiple companies, researchers to aggregate that data somehow and, and provide feedback and have this like sort of community of scientists with a single purpose of, of achieving a certain goal or finding a cure or something like that. So yeah, very interesting. Greg, you're muted. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, one of the other ways that we're kind of looking at that, I think what, one of the keys that Casey mentioned is incentives. And so, hmm. you know, eventually I think the culture will change, but it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be a light switch. It's going to be like a, you know, it's going to be a long road for, uh, especially like big farmer to sort of like change from the way that they've all done things. And so <clears throat> one of the things that Everloom's working on is tools that incentivize, um, that incentivize uh, folks to share that data. And for instance, you know, we're working on a platform that, um, that uses AI to do uh, RNA therapeutics, specifically um, antisense oligonucleotides. And not just not just in the design, but also in sort of like managing the 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 entire life cycle of that develop of developing that particular therapeutic. And so companies are all of a sudden incentivized to use tools like that. Um, just just in the, just like we talked about with with Google or with Facebook, um, you you give your data because you want to use um, you want to use the platform that they've uh, that they've developed. And so we're we're also looking at going down, uh, you know, going down some of those roads and developing tools that not only that, that really do like change the game and utilize some of these, you know, cutting edge technologies to make drug development quicker and faster and more intuitive and, and all of those things. Interesting. So and thanks for sharing that. And it sounds like you guys already have like a services and products you are helping, uh, you know, these organizations with can you kind of describe them in a little bit more detail as well like um what services that you offer specifically in addition to what you already have sure um i mean i think at, at our core it's the lab as a service like that's like the core of who we are right now i mean 
the way that we're sort of looking at, you know, you see the, the slide, the personalized medicine company, um, there's a there's a long road uh, that we need to travel to to truly become a personalized medicine company that's available to the masses. And so the way that we're approaching it is, you know, right now we have our rare disease lab as a service where customers can come, they can, uh, you know, essentially uh, contract with us to develop a therapeutic for, for their child with a neurological disorder. And that's sort of like the first, um, and, and we sort of, and we, you know, we help them along the entire journey because a lot of folks when they're just starting out, they have no idea where to turn to. And now there's a, you know, Everloom, they can turn to us and we can kind of help them through that journey. And so that's sort of like the, sort of like the first pillar, I guess you could say. And then, so then the question is, how are we going to bring down the costs to make this available to everybody? Because right now, as Casey mentioned, you either have to be wealthy or you have to start a foundation, fundraise, go, you know, go down that whole road, but that's not the ultimate goal. And, you know, we feel that there's going to be lots of, technological breakthroughs to 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 get to being a personalized medicine company some of those breakthroughs are going to happen through everloom some of them are going to ha- are going to happen through other companies and we're just going to like use the things that um, other people are building to like to, to continue to bring down that cost um, for us the next thing that we're working on on the technology side is what is this platform we're calling the RNA one platform which is it, it's basically our um, platform that utilizes AI to develop um, these anti uh, antisense oligonucleotides, these ASOs that um, that then you know become the therapeutics that these families can use to help their children. Um, so that's sort of like the next uh, the next pillar that we're that we're working on. This is you know how can we take some of these different technologies? And one of the things that I think is like you know underappreciated is just how much you know how quickly these technologies are advancing um and way faster than uh people expected one of the things that i've you know said multiple times is even if like everloom itself like never invented anything if we just were if we just built the systems and built the process in place to like take advantage of all of these new things that are like coming down the pipe that in, of it, that in of itself is going to be a big innovation because it's going to, you know, it's going to create that system that allows families to start to um, utilize some of these services. And and the more that technology advances, the more the cost comes down, the larger the pool of potential folks that can use those services gets. And so uh, that's kind of that's that's kind of how we how we sort of look at it is let's create the the system and then let's start let's start, you know, picking some of these things that we feel we can make the biggest impact on to start bringing down the cost and bringing down the time it takes to create some of these therapeutics. Casey, I don't know if you have anything more to more to add to that or not. No, I mean, that's, that, yeah, that, that's great. I mean, it, it, what we're seeing too is it's been interesting for us because when we launched, we started working with family foundations, you know, and obviously Rose was our first client. And I had reached a place where I had developed cell lines. And, and so, you know, I was at a certain stage. And what we're seeing is some foundations have made cell lines. They've actually tried to do therapeutic development and something failed and, and they can't get that data back. And so 
in some cases we're having to redo experiments um, that they've already done in an academic institution or a partnership with a company and they can't get the data. Hmm. And, uh, and I, I had a similar experience with, with, with the uh, animal models, but in, in, where where we're trying to go this year is really from the get more get, get closer to the beginning the less a parent has to become a drug developer and an expert at their disease the more i feel like we're solving that problem and so if we can be given a genetic report and do an amenability study on the disease with the pediatric neurologist or pediatrician and say, okay, we believe one of these technologies we work with is, you know, the disease is amenable to. We can get started on that project really quickly. There's no six months of negotiating with the tech transfer office. There's no parent that needs to be an expert at, at the steps and the processes to get to a proof of concept drug, you know. And, and so that part's very exciting to me that, you know, we, we have this group of foundations we're working with that are wonderful people. But, but in many ways, they've become like me and that they've had to become experts at their disease. And, and so, you know, we're hoping to see a world where, like Rick said, it's more affordable. A, a general person could afford it. And uh, a world where, you know, these parents get a diagnosis and they can continue to, to try to live their best life with these kids while we work our asses off to try to give them a second chance. Yeah, I can only imagine how valuable this is for patients, uh, really for families who are not biotech people, you know, they're not healthcare people either. They're just normal families, you know, we're given this uh, diagnosis and kind of lost. And then, you know, you guys can come in and sort of help, help their journey. You know, it's not going to fix their journey totally, but at least it gives them something. And I think that's something that is extremely valuable. So really appreciate what you guys are working on and, and really grateful for you to come on the show and sharing this experience with you, uh, with us, uh, the community. And um, yeah, just, I am definitely hopeful for the future of biotech, the future of personalized medicine. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, we've talked a lot about Everloom, rare disease, the communities, the families, and how you guys came together to provide these services. Is there anything else, Rick and Casey, that you'd like to share uh, before we kind of wrap up this conversation? I don't think I have anything. Definitely appreciate you facilitating and uh, having us on. Definitely. I mean, the, the last thing I would say is I think what's crucial is that no one person can solve these issues. And so we really need to be building an ecosystem of companies and thought leaders and move into this world together. You know, the idea that we're better together is, is really fundamental of, of AI data sets, you know, um, but it's also fu the fundamentals of the human experience when, when it comes to moving the needle. So, you know, companies like PyBio and, you know, very supportive of and then Everloom and and others like uh, IXLs and La Jolla Labs and and uh, uh, you know Kalara and just looking at this ecosystem we're building. The more we can work together, the more we can we can create systems together. I think the more opportunity we have to succeed. Absolutely.
can't agree with you more. Um, thank you to our guests. If you have any questions, concerns, or ideas generated from today's discussion, uh, please reach out to us by email or through any of our social media platforms. Uh, we love your comments, likes, shares, and we would love to talk to you and invite you to the Vibe community. So thanks again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Vibecast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share a review and rating on your favorite podcast player. If you are working towards your next round of financing for your drug development program, we'd be thrilled to connect with you and explore how we can offer our assistance. Check out vibebio.com for more information. You can also find videos of these podcasts on the Vibe Bio YouTube channel. We look forward to hearing from you.